Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Just be careful as you walk around here. Because it's icy. It is a crisp morning under the pale blue Alberta skies as Roy Milne gets into his car to go to work. I upgraded to a 97 Camry here this year. He lives in the small hamlet of Duffield. He always has. Uh, I actually grew up in the, with the, went to the school just two blocks from here. Um, and the family's farmed here for, since they homesteaded in 03, I think it was. That's 1903. Coal has been mined in this part of Alberta for more than 100 years. And Roy has worked in the sprawling coal mine nearby for 38 of them. Well, there's, there's two routes to go to work, so I've driven that, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of times. But Roy's only got a few more of those drives to work left before it all comes to an end. The Highvale Coal Mine, the largest strip coal mine in Canada, is closing. By the time you hear this, it already will have, taking hundreds of coal jobs with it, Roy's included. These were stable jobs, they have pensions, benefits. Uh, you literally had second and third generation working at that mine uh, and at the power plants. Um, The plants at one point, when I first started there, produced over half of Alberta's power. The mine and the power plants are owned by TransAlta, which committed to being coal-free by 2022. The Highvale coal mine opened in 1970, and it supplied adjacent power plants for decades. There is still plenty of coal in the ground here, and that's where it will stay. This meeting with Roy, it's mid-December, and he's counting down the days to the last bit of coal that will be burned on New Year's Eve, 2021. That'll be where the last little bit of coal goes down. By December 31st, that's uh, the last bit pushed in and done. End of an era. Yep, definitely the end of an era. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Dog Project. Coal. These are not any jobs. They are well-paying, unionized jobs in rural areas. Some communities without other industries. Communities where you could get a good job for life without a degree if you worked in the coal mine. Places where everything is touched by coal. TransAlta owns the Highvale coal mine and three formerly coal-fired plants in and around Parkland County, about 45 minutes west of Edmonton. Coal workers have been gradually laid off from the mine and the plants over the past few years. The last 78 positions were eliminated in December as operations shut down. These job losses are the result of a federal and provincial climate change policy decision to cut coal by 2030 and drastically reduce Canada's carbon emissions. But they're also a major test of the idea of a just transition for fossil fuel workers. The concept that Canada's imperative to act on climate will come with green jobs, a safety net, dignity. But is that what's happening? Doc Project producer Kristen Nelson spent a few days in December in Parkland County, Alberta, getting to know the people who live here, who have made their lives here, trying to find out 
as midnight ticks closer on the mine. What this transition away from coal really looks like for the people living it. Kristen, we'll take it from here. A uh, little gas station and a post office. Uh, here's the main rail line that I'm talking about, runs uh, for CN, that the uh, you can see coal trains go by. At 63, Roy Milne has been a coal miner for more than half his life. Right here, as I said, in Duffield, is, uh, went to school here from grade one to grade nine. Uh, small little unincorporated hamlet. My great aunts actually ran the one of the first restaurants here. Roy has a salt and pepper mustache. Under his hoodie, he's wearing a t-shirt with a little yellow canary on it. Still got a tape deck here. Oh yeah, this this really is a, a an old beauty. <laughs> what do you got in here right now? <laughs> oh, right now, I think it's Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn. Oh yeah, we're gonna have to turn that on. Yeah. <laughs> He considers himself one of the lucky ones, because he'll leave with an unreduced pension, perhaps just a couple years earlier than he would have otherwise. We're just headed west towards where the mine is. We drive together along a single lane highway. Roy is the tour guide. We're coming up here now. If you'll see off to the left on the horizon, you'll see the first smokestacks come up. This is the uh, the Keepills plant. Um, and this highway 627, the secondary, actually goes the mines on both sides of it. There's actually a detour up here. On the the Highvale mine is just south of Lake Wabaman and about a 45-minute drive west of Edmonton. It's the size of a small city, almost exactly the size of Lethbridge. So the mine itself goes south here a number of miles. Uh, comes under the road up ahead here. I'll pull over so you can have a, a gander on it up here. You can see where the drag lane is up there. That's the end of it. <clears throat> the highway actually goes all the way through but does a little jog around. And then the mining took place on this side and continues all the way down there for about five miles. Word, that's huge. Well, that's why I wanted to sort of give you a drive around so you get a, an idea of the size of it. Um, we'll drive by the other plant. Roy will work at the mine right up to December 31st. He'll be there when the last bit of coal is burned. The end of the coal era around here will mark the end of his career. Oh, I, I am one of the lucky ones. It's minority that have been there long enough to, to get that full pension uh, or as close as you can get to it and uh, I've had a good long run with a, a really good job. He's the president of the United Steelworkers Local 1595 representing coal workers. He became president in 2015, the same year Alberta's previous NDP government under Rachel Notley announced the phase out of coal. During his tenure he's had to oversee many rounds of layoffs. It's been uh not a great thing to watch, sort of like a controlled train wreck, I guess. I mean, have you had guys in tears in your office? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Because uh, even with, with knowing that it's going to come, it's not real until it's real. Um, and that can be wrenching on families. Uh, as I said, I've been very fortunate, but there's lots that haven't Coal is the single biggest contributor to climate change, and Canada has committed to phasing out coal-fired electricity by 2030. But Roy wonders why countries like China, India, and the United States haven't committed the same. We are such a... Uh, we're, we're like the, the fly on the elephant's backside. Uh, it's not going to change measurably anything worldwide because Canada is, what, one and a quarter or one and a half percent of, of the emissions, and we're trying to trim that little bit. So 
well, there's lots of virtue signaling and look at us, what we're doing. If you're not actually having any tangible results come out of it other than uh, disrupting your economy and putting us all in a poorhouse, then it's uh, not very effective. When the Rachel Notley government announced the end of coal in Alberta, it also earmarked $40 million to help coal workers and communities, promising a just transition. So here's what we're going to do. First, Alberta is going to move away from coal and towards clean power. And we will pursue this policy without endangering the reliability of our electricity system, and we will maintain a reasonable stability in prices to consumers and business. We will ensure that workers are not left behind, and we will not unnecessarily strand capital. When the NDP lost the 2019 provincial election and Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party took power, the coal policy was not reversed. There's money for coal workers to go back to school to retrain or to relocate to find another job. There's also enhanced employment insurance payments and a so-called bridge to retirement for older workers. Kudos to the province for doing that. It's, uh, they also have followed through with the transition programs. Roy Milne appreciates these programs, but he says overall coal workers simply weren't given enough time or support to find other jobs. Uh, they've got good skills, but no matter what way you look at it, there isn't a job that's within 10 or 20 or 30 minutes drive. Um, they're going to have to go to either camp jobs in, in McMurray, and if the federal government's successful in closing down the oil and gas industry, then there's less jobs there. And uh, the green jobs that are supposed to be coming along don't have the same rate of pay, generally don't have benefits. They're certainly nothing comparable to what we've spent generations working with. My dad worked at the coal mine, retired at the coal mine, my brother, my brother-in-law. Like It affects a whole community. It's not just one person. And, and we're, we're going to see the big changes in the next year. Terry Stacy met her partner, Lonnie Oz, at the Highvale coal mine when they were working there together in 2012. She, uh, she didn't think I was her type initially, but wore her down. <laughs> and then, the couple lives on a few acres across from a pond, also near Duffield, with their dogs, Jack and Banjo. Go jump in, Banjo. There, there are babies. If we'd have maybe been younger, we'd have had kids. <laughs> Terry worked at the mine for six years, but then she started to worry about the future of coal. I, I sort of saw the writing on the wall as soon as the NDP came in. They hadn't made the announcement yet that they were cutting back on people, but an opportunity came for me to go up north, and yeah. I took it. These days she yeah. works in the oil sands north of Fort McMurray, flying in to work for 14 days and then flying home for 14 days. I'm, I'm grateful for the decision I made, yes. For us, it, 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 it's been challenging and it, it's not always easy working out of town. Um, it was a strategic decision for Terry to take that job away from the mine. They were hedging their bets. But Lonnie stayed on, hoping the work would last. Now, at 50 years old, he's too young to retire. No, I've still, I've still got some time to put in. Like 2030 would have been almost optimal. 2030 is that deadline, both provincial and federal, to phase out coal. 
But Transalto, which owns the mine and the power plants, hit the target ahead of schedule. One of my first questions when I got hired out there was, how long will this last? And they're like, oh, you'll die before we run out of coal kind of thing, right? And you're like, okay, perfect. <laughs> this, is, this is where I want to be. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you're at that age where you're not really a prime candidate for hiring. And since the provincial government's coal phase-out policy came down in 2015, there have been five rounds of layoffs at the mine, before this final one. Workers with the least seniority were the first to lose their jobs. Many of them were younger, with more time left in their working lives to pivot to something new. Generally, it's the older workers with the most seniority who've held on to the end and this last major layoff. They stuck around trying to build up their pensions, perhaps holding out hope that something would change, that they could make it to retirement. That's what Lonnie hoped for, but it didn't happen. And now he doesn't know what he'll do after his job with the mine comes to an end. Well, it, it's scary. I, like, we spend a lot of nights talking and stressing and... I try not to feel too sorry for myself because, like I say, I, I'm not the first one to lose a job. There's other industries, like I say, there's budget cutbacks and there's people face it all the time. We just, we happen to be losing our entire industry. And, you know, determined people find a way to make it work and yeah, okay, maybe, maybe I got to go pump gas for a year or something like who knows. But if I was younger, I would probably be even less bitter about it and, and say, okay, yeah, you know what, easy come, easy go, I'll find another. And I got lots of years to figure my, my life out, but it's, You're it, about it yeah, You're it's a bit of a bitter pill at this age to be going, what now? Lonnie started working pretty much straight out of high school over 30 years ago. He plans to access the province's money for retraining, perhaps to study land surveying, but he's hesitating. Basically, I've spent the last couple of years, three years, since all the, the government, the transition benefits have been announced trying to decide what what would be a good fit like going back to school at 50 you know what what can i take what's going to guarantee me a job for terry the $12,000 from the province for education is not enough like if you if you really want to help people that are coming out of an industry that they're not prepared to go out into a, a different workforce $12,000 wasn't the number not even close like, yes, we're grateful for some, that that's nice, but it just seems like a little bit too little for what they're taking. Like I say, because of our industry is so trade dependent and equipment operator dependent, like we're not replacing those jobs. So like I said, kudos to the government for putting the education grant out there, but I, I don't believe everybody's going to be able to go out and find a decent paying job that rather they pick the wrong education and by the time they get come out of it the demand's not there yeah. is that what you're afraid of well exactly that's that's probably my biggest fear is that once I go through all this and I do get the education that all of a sudden it, it just it's not working it's not I just spent a, a year going to school and trying to get myself reestablished, and it's it's all for naught right if Lonnie was offered a green job, he'd be happy to take it. In fact, he thinks there's more green work to do at the mine, cleaning up the site. Absolutely we can. We've got the equipment, we've got the know-how, we've got the manpower. There's years and years of work out there. 
Shutting down a mine doesn't just mean closing the doors and walking away. It's a huge job that entails filling up the pits left behind from strip mining, covering that over with subsoil and topsoil, grading it all and planting trees. Then it all has to be certified and tested by the authorities. It takes years. TransAlta says it's working with stakeholders to make plans for the future of the site. There's talk of farming, forests, lakes. 40 to 60 employees will be kept on at the mine, the company says, to do the reclamation work over the next 20 years. Like every person that is there right now, if the company chose to expedite it or the government stepped in and said, you don't have 20, you got 15 or you got 12. Every person that's there right now wouldn't have to lose their job. Guys that are- I asked TransAlta about this. Why not keep everyone who's losing their job to do the reclamation work in a shorter timeline? Someone from the company said that they considered the land, people, and equipment to come up with an optimal plan. They say that reclamation is really different from mining and that there simply isn't the space to keep hundreds of people working on the site. Lonnie and Terry say most people they know that have already left the mine or been laid off are finding jobs in other coal mines, diamond mines, or up in the oil sands like Terry. The idea that fossil fuel workers will transition into green jobs, installing wind turbines or solar panels, it's just not a reality. Again, that whole scenario was kind of brought forward when this all came out, but there's not the jobs there. They don't need as many people for those jobs. Where's a windmill within 100 miles of here? There's there's no windmills, so are we all moving as well? You know, are are we all like solar powers? Do we even have somewhere close by for that? No, around here, no. No. It's, it's, it's all talk. It's talk. It, it's never, never come up. It's just, oh, you know, it'll create jobs. Well, we're not seeing it. We're coming out of the power industry and we're not seeing these jobs on our end of it. You know, it's not up to the workers to figure out how to create jobs in a new green economy. That's got to be up to the private sector and it's got to be up to government. Mark Rowlandson is a lawyer who used to be assistant to the national director of the United Steelworkers. Where the jobs are is actually in manufacturing wind turbines or solar panels, but especially wind turbines. Alberta does have a growing renewable energy sector, but Mark points out that once a wind turbine or solar panel is installed, it doesn't need a lot of people to keep it running. It's tragic to me that at the moment we manufacture exactly no wind turbines in Canada. We don't manufacture the blades, we don't manufacture towers, and we don't manufacture the turbines, which are the part of the middle of those installations that are actually the highest value added manufacturing. That's where the jobs are. And we don't have much of a plan to bring those jobs to Canada. In 2018, Mark was a member of the federal government's Just Transition for Canadian Coal Power Workers and Communities Task Force. The most useful thing that that task force did was actually traveling the country and meeting with those communities and meeting with the workers. So in the spring of 2018, he spent a full day in this part of Alberta. He and the other members of the task force visited a power plant, talked with local leaders, and met with workers, including union president and longtime miner Roy Milne, who we heard from earlier. One night, there was a community meeting. We got extraordinary turnouts at these community town halls that we said, because they were honestly, because over and over and over again, we were told, you are the first people who have actually come to talk to us about this issue. No one else has demonstrated any interest in in our plight. Mark and Roy stayed in touch. 
And when Mark went to the COP24 climate change meetings in Katowice, Poland in late 2018, Roy went with him. There's this perspective out there that workers who are, whose jobs are connected to fossil fuels are also kind of climate change deniers. And that's not actually ever been my experience. Like, you know, Roy, as I mentioned earlier, he went to Katowice, right? Like, he, like I, I think it's not so much a climate a resistance to the imperatives of climate change as it is uh, the completely understandable and natural resistance to the loss of one's employment, one's career, one's livelihood, and one's community. Mark thinks it's essential to listen to workers and communities, and he argues that Canada hasn't been very good at navigating economic transitions in the past. That skill that governments used to have has, in my judgment, atrophied over the last number of decades. And so we're now facing the biggest economic transition that we have probably seen in a century, perhaps since the beginning of the Industrial Age, and my worry is that, that governments just don't think of themselves as having to take the lead on these issues and really spend the resources and come up with a plan to support workers and communities through this transition. I th- honestly think that our governments don't quite know what to do. Mark and the other members of the federal government's Just Transition Task Force for Coal Workers published a report with recommendations in April 2019. A few months later, Justin Trudeau seemed to take up the cause. That's Trudeau at a campaign stop in Burnaby, B.C. in September 2019, promising that if elected, he would introduce a Just Transition Act to help fossil fuel workers. But that didn't happen in the Liberals' last government. Consultations on the matter began last summer, and they're ongoing. A spokesperson to the Minister of Natural Resources says, quote, more details on any proposed legislation will be available in the coming months. Most workers in the coal sector know full well that eventually their jobs, as currently defined, cannot continue. And so that's why we need to get on with it and actually just develop a plan and put some resources to it this transition is going to make any sense at all. Governments just haven't been there to support those workers. And workers know that. And the result of that is, that's one of the reasons why I think workers don't have a lot of faith uh, in the whole concept of a just transition. It's because they don't have a lot of faith in government's ability to support them through economic transition. It, it, It absolutely leads to polarization. It makes this issue more polarizing than it should be. The kind of polarization Mark Rowlandson worries about isn't too hard to find in Wabaman, Alberta. The small community of 650 people is at the center of this particular transition away from coal because it neighbors the Highvale Mine. The town is perched on the edge of Lake Wabaman. There are just a couple main streets and a pier that looks across the lake toward the mine. The smokestacks of the power plants are a fixture on the horizon. So coal's been coal's been part of our lives all all along. Linda Masaka is having lunch with two friends and her grandson at the Wabaman Hotel restaurant. Uh, I'm gonna go number one and the soup. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The the whole economy around here has changed, where the cost is so much higher, and um, 
there's not there's not the people that have the jobs anymore either so they're all struggling as well until 2011 there was a coal-fired plant right in town then the facility closed its doors and the whole town came out to see the smokestacks come tumbling down you don't have to scratch too deep below the surface to find strong feelings about coal in Wabaman. Well, it kept the town going for many years, and Transalta was very generous to the village. Susan Fodor's husband used to work for Transalta before he took a job in Fort McMurray. Transalta um, paid our mortgage, fed our kids, put them through hockey. It was a good job, you know. And now I don't know what the next generation's going to do. Debbie Webster lives on a farm close by. Everything that we touch is made with fossil fuels. And I, I think losing the coal mines, I mean, I don't agree with them opening up a new coal mine in the, in the eastern slopes. But let's, let's use the resource that we have open now and use it responsibly. And that's when a man at another table interrupts us. There's a lot of greenhouses here that people don't know about that run on coal. What are they going to do now? They don't have a gas line to their greenhouse or their acreage. Yeah. Like, well, and this is so... They should be allowed to say, no, you can't sell coal. If this was Quebec, they would, they would, it would be sacred. The coal would be sacred. The oil would be sacred. No, no, don't tell us what to do with our oil. But it's Alberta, them again. So many people unemployed in this province, and we never make the news. Never. He didn't tell me his name, and shortly after this exchange, the man stormed out of the restaurant. The women eating lunch together aren't as mad as he is, but they aren't exactly happy about climate change policies either. Our global warming, too. Like, I mean, if we want to listen to DiCaprio, we can have a real bulb. And I'm telling you, the guy needs a good swift kick to wake up and... Think about what he's saying. He's an actor. He's not a freaking oh, scientist. You, you, you're, you're a farmer. You, you see probably the drought. The oh yes, yes. Oh, yeah. So do you worry about global warming though? I see. The, I see. There is cyclic. It's very cyclic. I mean, two years ago we were we were soaked. Yeah. We, we yes. couldn't get the hay yes. off. This year we had a drought. I mean, yes, maybe we're putting too much pollution into the air, but I I don't think that charging a carbon tax for it is going to solve that problem. No, because they give it back to you at the end of the year anyway. They charge it on your bill, then they send you a tax credit at the end of the year, a carbon tax credit at the end of the year. Don't take it off to start with, I'll have more money to live that month. I don't want it at the end of the year. Yeah. Because I'm just making it from month to month. You're feeling it at the gas pump, at the... gas. Uh, my husband's in long-term care in Edmonton. For me to go to see him, I can only afford to go once a week. I can't go when I should. Phasing out coal and transitioning the economy away from fossil fuels, it is not easy, and it's personal here. But the science is clear. Coal is the single biggest contributor to climate change. The planet is warming at a faster rate than feared, and the window to prevent runaway catastrophic climate change that will threaten humanity's future on this planet, that window is closing. That is why phasing out coal was a major agenda item at last fall's United Nations COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, Scotland. At the summit, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that in addition to phasing out domestic coal power, Canada would work to end thermal coal exports. 
and he pledged a billion dollars to help developing countries transition away from coal-fired electricity too. In 2017, Canada and the United Kingdom founded the Powering Past Coal Alliance, and 165 countries have joined, pledging to phase out coal power. In a peer-reviewed study published last September in the journal Nature, researchers from the University College London concluded that 90% of the world's coal reserves must stay in the ground to prevent 1.5 degrees of global warming. But of course, the case for ending the use of coal doesn't make it any easier for the people living with the reality of how that policy is playing out. Outside the restaurant in Wabaman, a freight train rolls by right along the lake as I meet up with another resident. You said you're used to that train. Yeah, <laughs> I just tune it out now. <laughs> Charlene Smiley has a different take on the phase out of coal. I'm Charlene Smiley, I live in the hamlet of Wabaman. Um, I used to be the mayor here when we were still a village. So you were the last mayor? I was. I don't know if that's something I should be proud of or not. <laughs> she was first elected to Wabaman's council in 2013 and then became the mayor in 2015. That was just a couple years after a different coal plant that used to be right in the village closed. With it went about half the tax base, according to Charlene. Wabaman was a one-horse town for many, many years, and then the plant aged out, and we lost all our revenue and had no other industrial land, so there was no plan beyond being a coal community. With the loss of so much revenue, Wabaman was struggling to keep up services like firefighting. So at the end of 2020, the village was dissolved and amalgamated into the wider county. It's been a struggle, and the job losses related to the Highvale coal mine closing are just the latest blow. The further closures really affected our residents. Um, it's a big part of our, our identity and the, what people do for a living out here. She knows some people in the town are really unhappy about coal's demise. You know, change, change is really hard, especially if you've only done one thing. Um, so, you know, that can be challenging, and it's, it's always hard when there's a change. While she feels for the workers, she's also interested in thinking about Wabaman's future. Um, personally, I, I knew that this would be coming eventually, and we'd have to transition. My hope is that the governments help the workers transition and help communities transition, but more so the, the people, you know, to make sure those workers are trained for their next, their next career. There's a lot of transferable skills that can be applied to another technology and, and to really you know, help attract those industries out here. We have the land, so what's next? Wabaman did receive $347,000 from Alberta's Coal Community Transition Fund aimed at helping municipalities affected by the phase out of coal. Charlene trained as an electrician and understands the pressure facing working people, but she sees opportunities too. Her common law partner is also an electrician. Um, well, he works in Edmonton right now. Actually, he works, uh, he maintains electric buses. Okay. So. <laughs> so. He's got a job, a green job. Yes, yeah, so he's got a green job. He used to work uh, maintaining e-houses for oil and gas. She can see the upside of moving away from fossil fuels. Future. I mean, I have little kids. I want them to be able to have a planet to live on. And I know these changes aren't easy, um, but I think they do need to happen. So whose job is it to help workers and communities like Wabaman make it through this transition off coal? It's a global necessity, a federal and provincial mandate. Hundreds of millions of dollars have gone towards making the transition. 
But for workers laid off from Canada's largest coal strip mine, a lot of their responsibility falls on the shoulders of one guy in one room of a former elementary school. AC here. Sit tight. You'll meet him in just a minute. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. Hi. Are you Len? Hi. Len Austin is sitting at a tidy desk in front of a computer. Yeah, it's uh, pretty spectacular, isn't it? <laughs> He's the one and only person running this place called the Just Transition Center. I think the goal here is really just to assist these individuals in transitioning to an unknown. It's located in the same building as the union office, the former Keep Hills Elementary School. Pretty much it, <laughs> what you see. So there are two desks that are set up with individual computers so that uh, the workers can come in and access uh, the internet. Len has a broad smile, reddish beard, and an eyebrow ring. In 2012, he moved to Edmonton from Vancouver with his now wife to work at the mine without having a university degree or advanced education to earn a good living in Vancouver, we were living paycheck to paycheck. So that, that did play a factor in us moving out here because it gave us an opportunity um, and the idea was that this would be sort of a career, uh, career position and that I would retire out here at the mine. So, <laughs> so in 2012, um, that was definitely a possibility in 2015. That was not going to happen. <laughs> 2015 was the year the provincial government announced plans to phase out coal. Four years later, Len was part of one of the early rounds of layoffs. He didn't have the seniority that others had at the mine. Yes, it was troubling because of the quality of life that the mine provided for me. From a policy standpoint and from a long-term environmental perspective, I could see why they were wanting to do so, right? I can get behind that point. Len opened up the Just Transition Center shortly after being laid off, and he's been able to help others face what he had to face. And do you feel like you've been able to help people? Yeah, absolutely, for sure, yeah. Um, I'm well-versed on the different programs, what's available, you know, who to contact, that sort of stuff, and I think that for some people... Um, especially if they do happen to know me previously as co-workers. They find it a bit easier to reach out. Some of the workers he assists may have started working at the coal mine before they graduated high school. So the union helped by offering workers a chance to earn their high school diploma before facing unemployment. Um, for some, internet connection uh, doesn't exist. Um, there are some workers who don't even have a computer. So this just gives them that opportunity to come in and use a computer. Or, um, in some cases, uh, with their permission, I'll just fill out the online application on their behalf. Mm -hmm. 
The money set aside by the province to help coal workers with relocation, retraining, or early retirement isn't perfect, says Len, but it's better than nothing. And funding for this Just Transition Center comes from the federal government. But the problems persist. You haven't seen a whole bunch of people going to get green jobs. No, no, not, not at all. No, most, most of the people that I've had contact with have continued in the mining industry. From Len Austin's front row seat watching this transition away from coal, he says that if the goal is to move fossil fuel workers into green jobs, then there's more work to do. If this concept of just transition continues, there should be more focus on that process of converting the workers from fossil fuels to green energy. So the question is, who should be responsible for making that happen? Governments clearly have a role to play, but what about the company? What role does it have? We're doing this out of a desire to address, you know, the greatest environmental challenge um, that we have. But we can't forget the complexity and the, the human cost that this brings. Liam Stone is senior manager of policy and sustainability with Transalta. Transalta as a company has reduced our emissions about 20, just under 26 megatons since 2005. And I think if you look across Canada, there's few companies that can, can point to that level of absolute uh, emissions reduction. Uh, and we see a lot of opportunity as a company in uh, the clean energy transition. Before the province's phase-out plans, more than half of Alberta's electricity came from coal, the highest proportion of coal-generated electricity anywhere in the country. You know, coal is one of the places that we're able to achieve significant greenhouse gas emissions reduction uh, in Alberta and, and globally. But so far, the company is not replacing coal with renewable energy. It's converted the power plants around the Highvale mine from coal to natural gas another fossil fuel, but one that is a lot less carbon intensive. The coal to gas conversion, it essentially drops uh, emissions by approximately half um, from those units. And we see those units playing an important role uh, over the next, you know, say 10 to 15 years in providing that reliability, uh, lower emissions and, and competitively priced electricity. But ultimately, I think our thesis is that uh, the world's going to be going to a carbon neutral or, or net zero grid over the next couple of decades. And at that stage, you would be looking at different solutions like renewables with energy storage or uh, hydrogen generation that are sort of truly uh, zero emitting. Transalta is committed to being carbon neutral by 2050. We think renewables are going to play a bigger and bigger role. And ultimately, sort of most, if not all of the generation is going to be uh, zero emitting. But the company hasn't achieved these goals without government help. The previous provincial government negotiated something called the Off-Coal Agreement in 2016. Under it, Transalta receives $37.4 million a year until 2030 in exchange for phasing out coal. Fewer workers are needed to run the plants on natural gas than on coal. And Liam Stone acknowledges the human toll of the changes that the company and the world are making. That's where his colleague Ryan Braden comes in. I'm the manager of hydro and mining. 
for Transalta. I've lived in the area since 2008, uh, around the Highvale area. I've been a part of the Highvale mine uh, through the transition. He says the company knew transitioning off of coal was necessary, but that it wouldn't be easy. You're right. This is uh, very difficult, and it's been very difficult uh, for the last several years, not not just uh, this year. This is this is kind of the uh, the final reductions as we go into reclamation. But um, I would say we've been living through this for the last you know two to three years. Ryan says Transalta wanted to do everything it could for the employees, treating them with respect and being transparent. He says Transalta organized job fairs and invited local industry to interact with the workers facing job losses, and that a number of employees found new jobs that way. We also did a lot of different training. Uh, some of it was on-site items to try to give people different certifications. We brought in outside resources to train folks. Um, all of those things. So we really tried to get our employees to have the best skill base they could have to find those future roles. The company knows it's at the leading edge when it comes to this idea of transitioning fossil fuel workers. You know, to hear the news that we would be shutting down and the impact on our employees, that was very tough. Um, so we had a number of years to kind of, you know, work our way through that. And now that I look back at it, I'll, I'll tell you, I have a lot of pride for the way we did it, a lot of pride for the way we interacted with um, our employees and, and really tried to do everything we could for them, knowing that we're not going to change the, the outcome of where we're going. But the way we got there, I think we've, we've really set a standard for how other people can do it. Transalta employed a lot of people in this area, and, and they had no problems you know, uh, having people work shift work and, and breathing in the coal dust. We made the money, but... Terry Stacy doesn't buy Transalta's version of the story. And as soon as the government came in and said, here's a whole bunch of money, can we just shut you down? It was between them and, and the people that have always made it work and the people that have always made it happen. They're, they're forgotten. And then the big players, they're shaking each other's hands, congratulating each other. They're having a great time because they're so green right now. Wow. And is it, is, are they green? Her partner, Lonnie Oz, is facing unemployment now because of the government policy and Transalta's decision to wind down coal ahead of the 2030 deadline. They've taken all this money. We've become the government's EI problem. Anything we're getting for this closure of coal and shutdown of coal-fired plants, anything we're getting is coming from the government. The company end of it, there's nothing. Like, they've been asked, well, what about buyouts for guys that are close? What about pension buyouts? What about, you know, this and that? And they're, nope, we, we can't do anything better than what the government's doing for you. It was a huge missed opportunity to get more uh, from the companies to help support the workers in transition. Gil McGowan is president of the Alberta Federation of Labor, and he led the province's coal transition coalition, representing coal workers from across the province. I was frustrated because uh, the companies were not actually facing a big loss in this transition. Uh, they were actually standing to make a lot of money. He says that in the years after the coal phase-out was announced, there was a glut of natural gas on the market and a strong economic argument to be made for converting to natural gas. Um, and uh, But at the same time, they were crying crocodile tears to the government saying, oh, your coal phase out is going to cost us so much and you, you have to uh, you know, provide us with billions of dollars of incentives 
Otherwise, we can't guarantee that the, we'll be able to keep the lights on. So they saw an opportunity to get where they wanted to go, which was transitioning to natural gas, but have the government pay for it. <laughs> Transalta disputes this and says that the company's decision to convert plants to natural gas was based on many factors, from the province's coal regulations and the increasing carbon tax to the company's desire to lower emissions and meet stakeholder expectations. Transelta is not the only power company compensated by the province for leaving coal in the ground. And in a statement, Transelta says the government compensated the company for a policy decision that substantially reduced the value of the company's assets and stranded capital. For his part, Gil McGowan says the province made some mistakes. They said they, they, they negotiated with the companies, they gave them a big check. Uh, and then they came to us afterwards and said, well, now we're done with the companies. Now we'll talk to the workers. And we told the government we were disappointed, uh, profoundly disappointed. I reached out to Alberta's NDP and to the current United Conservative Party government for their take on all of this. But neither responded to requests for comment. Gil McGowan says that there's an urgent need to learn the lessons of Alberta's transition away from coal and the effect that it's had on workers. If the world is moving away from fossil fuels, a much larger cohort of oil and gas workers could be next. What we're facing now in Alberta as and other oil producing jurisdictions around the world, the reality is that like it or not, the world is in the process of moving away from fossil fuels. Uh, this is not and if it's a when, and I think that the coal transition here in Alberta is one of the best places that we should go for lessons. If the lessons aren't learned, says Gill, there could be a major political backlash, like the one that led to Donald Trump's electoral strength in some parts of the U.S. Rust Belt. Because people have lost hope and they're angry and they become much more susceptible to the siren songs of these right-wing extremists. And so, you know, Canadians from other provinces may not care <laughs> that much about uh, the Alberta economy and people who work in oil and gas, but they will start to care when uh, a failed transition uh, turns into a political explosion. Out here. It's almost dark as Dennis Bauer heads out to work a night shift at the Highvale Mine. Basically 6.30 to 6.30 all night. Leave are all googly-eyed in the morning and hit the highway and, yeah. How, how often do you work nights? Half the shifts are nights for me, half the shifts are days, so it's usually a four on, four off. But right now I'm in the middle of doing seven night shifts in a row. So, lucky enough to pick up a few extra shifts, a few extra dollars before they kick me out the door. That's the plan. Just grab everything I can because, uh, yeah, I don't know what the future holds, so I'm going to never see uh, this wage again. 53-year-old Dennis Bauer is wearing a worn hoodie and work pants with reflectors at the cuff. After 19 years of working at the mine, he's about to be laid off. His official layoff date is December 21st, but he's been asked by Transalta to work over the holidays, right up to the night of December 31st. He'll be there when the last bit of coal is burned. The irony of getting kicked out of a job, like literally just before Christmas. Although, um, I think the last six years in a row, I think I've worked Christmas Day or Christmas Eve or both, uh, just because the, the mine was 365, 24 hours a day 
keeping the lights on and all that stuff for all those super grateful people out there that that uh, want to snuff out the industry. Yeah, Colgate's a very black eye in the real world. It is what it is. There's an abundance of it here in North America, in Alberta. Hundreds of years of coal left. Even on this mine here, I believe they say there's about 100 years of coal if you want to use it. Dennis doesn't support converting coal mines to natural gas, but he's also a realist. Canada is a resource-based economy still. It still is. It always was. People may hate that. They may not like that. But it's a reality. Everything we have to this day is credited towards that. Nobody's for destroying the environment or polluting. You're not going to find anybody for that. But again, there's got to be a realistic transition and realistic options to move to as we transition away from fossil fuels, I guess. Dennis tells me he's a little worried about whether he'll be able to pay his mortgage. And the stress of it all has been getting to him. The truth will come when uh, I stop rolling out this way to work every day. And I've got a lot of days at home uh, transitioning into my new reality. But yeah, I think it's impacted me. Uh, like I say, I can tell it's, uh, it's popping up in my dreams, things like that too. Like, So obviously it's on my mind consciously or subconsciously or both. He says he understands why some people might not feel sorry for him losing a job that pays over 100000 a year. But Dennis tells me he's been working hard since he was a teenager and it's daunting to be in your 50s without a college diploma, university degree or trade certificate and thinking about starting again. I think when you uh, take away people's livelihood, um, maybe it impacts their family, maybe the ripple effect goes down the line, take away everything somebody has and... Uh, yeah, I think uh, people can get pretty um, unrestful. Um, I think they can get pretty upset. I think eventually somebody's going to get upset to do, um, I don't know. You're talking about affecting a lot of jobs, especially when you start diving into the oil and gas sector. Like, a lot of jobs. And you affect a lot of lives. Like this is too, this is just the tip of the spear, like just the beginning. And... Uh, well, I think we're going to see a lot more of this yet before all said and done. Well, thanks for the chat. And with that, he gets into his Jetta and heads to the mine to work one of his last night shifts. All right, we'll see you later. Mines close all the time. They close because they run out of ore or because they become uneconomic. But this is the first mine that is nowhere close to running out of ore uh, and that is really closing as a result of government policy decisions that are directly aimed at addressing climate change and reducing carbon emissions. I think this is the first large sort of workplace that's going to close as a result. Labor lawyer Mark Rowlandson says we should all be paying attention to the end of coal around Wabaman and what it means for workers. Uh, I suspect they are the first of, of many more to come. And so we need, to, we need to draw as many lessons from them as we possibly can and bring their story to as many people as, as we possibly can because there are lessons to be learned there. Lessons to be learned first and foremost about the dignity of all work. These are incredibly proud and dignified coal miners who have a pride in their culture, in their work, and even, and I will say, in their union. And 
Sometimes in our climate change discussions, that gets lost. We think of, you know, the beleaguered fossil fuel worker who's, who has no place in the future of our economy. Well, we need to make sure that our economy of the future has a place for those workers. It may not be mining coal, it may not be working in fossil fuels, but we need to make sure that the dignity of that work is respected and that we, they, those workers have a place in our economy of the future. In the days after I met everyone, I got on a plane and flew back home to Ottawa, watching the patchwork of Alberta's snowy farmland disappear under me. It was a few days before Christmas. The irony of doing a story about coal over Christmas was lost on exactly no one. On the last day of 2021, Roy sent me an audio recording from his last shift and his last time at the mine. He was saying goodbye. Roy Milne, this is my last walk through and cleaning out the lockers here at work. I've uh, a few odds and ends, cover all stay, personal items out of there, and the end of 38 plus years here. This locker room that held change areas for close to 700 guys, there's about six left. And my last trip out past the showers, out the main door. It has been a good place to work. A lot of great guys to work with and girls. Now on to the next stage of my life. One load of clothes and odds and ends. Into the trunk. There we are. Heater running. Sayonara. Been a very good career. That Doc was produced by Kristen Nelson. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe, with Allison Cook. For photos of the mine and some of the people you met in this story, you can head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. That is all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Kristen Nelson, Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, Joan Weber, Kevin Ball, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer, and our senior producer is Sherry O'KK. I'm A.C. Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.